This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. What you're hearing in the background is an Australian musical instrument called the didgeridoo. This instrument is commonly used by the Aboriginal people in Australia, and we're playing it in order to introduce our guest scientist, John Alcock, whose research has taken him from his own backyard to the deserts of Arizona and as far away as Australia, where he's been studying animal behavior. In particular, he studies Dawson burrowing bees in Western Australia, and when he's closer to home here in Arizona, he studies tarantula hawks. Can you imagine what a tarantula hawk looks like? Well, we'll get to find out later in the show. Dr. Alcock, who's also a Regents Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, will help us learn about these animals and animal behavior. In fact, he's going to be really good for this because he's written a book on that very topic, animal behavior. What do you think the title is? What do you expect? Animal Behavior, an Evolutionary Approach. He's also written many other popular science books involving animal behavior, and a more recent one that's about a really cool plant called an orchid. Right now, let's greet our guest scientist. Welcome, Professor Alcock. Glad to be here, Dr. Biology. Animal behavior. Hmm. Seems like a straightforward topic, even though it covers an awful lot of information, whether we're talking about the world of insects, like your Dawson burrowing bee, or larger animals, like, say, the polar bear in the Arctic. There are some basic behaviors that we can study in all of them. What would you say are the most common and maybe the most important things we can learn from studying animals? Well, animal behavior is a very, very diverse field, and I think that what the beauty of animal behavior is is that it enables um, the researcher to explore any of of a wide variety of aspects of uh, biology. So you can study the genetics of behavior if you want. You can study the physiology, how nerve cells make behavior possible, and of course, in so doing, we may learn something about how our own brain and nervous system works, or we can study the so-called ecology of behavior, looking at how animals interact with their environment, how their adaptations enable them to do the things that they do so well, and we can study the evolution of behavior if we choose. So it's a very diverse and intriguing collection of, of sub-disciplines that make up the field of animal behavior. When you're doing your animal behavior research, just what part interest you the most? Well, I happen to be a person who loves bugs, and so I study primarily insect behavior. And the focus, as you mentioned about Dawson's burrowing bee, is I look at uh, the mating behavior of these animals to figure out how the species goes about finding mates and uh, competing with each other for access to mates and thus uh, passing on their genes to the next generation. When I first read about these burrowing bees, it, of course, it immediately piqued my interest because every bee I think of is up in a hive. How are these a little different? Well, that's a great question because when people do hear the word bee, they automatically think of the honey bee. And this bee is extremely important and extremely widespread, but it's only one of literally tens of thousands of bee species uh, in the world. And each one of those species is different from the honeybee, and each one has its own special story to tell and needs researchers out there to document their behavior. That's where I come in. It actually just brought up something in my mind. Recently, I've been seeing more and more of these black bees, and I've had a lot of people comment about them. One of the things is they always seem to be solitary. Is that their way? Well, yes. I think that's one of the key differences between the honeybee and most other bees. Not all other bees, but the honeybee, of course, lives in colonies, and there's a queen bee and a host of worker bees that are unable to reproduce. They're simply helping their mom out, 
and they help their mother produce a new brood of reproductive bees. Those will be the founders of the next generation. But that kind of social system is very, very different from those black bees that you've been seeing. That particular species is almost certainly a carpenter bee, and these carpenter bees, the females nest on their own without assistance from a host of workers, and the mama bee goes out and collects pollen and nectar and brings it back and produces a beautiful little packet of pollen and nectar and lays an egg on it, puts a partition of plywood between its cells, which are bored into wood, So it's a nice little tunnel into wood, uh, which is divvied up by a series of partitions, and each one of those little cubicles contains an offspring of that bee that she has produced on her own without assistance from any workers. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Uh, Can they sting? The the female carpenter bee certainly can, and uh, if you mm, choose to bother a female carpenter bee, she will get her sting out. That's going to help a lot because that question has come up several times. Well, besides the Dawson burrowing bees, you've studied some pretty interesting, if not scary, animals called tarantula hawks. These animals are neither a tarantula or a hawk, uh, but instead an insect. Uh, Can you tell us about them and what you've learned? Yeah, I love these uh, particular wasps because they are a wasp, and they're famous because the female wasp, which is really big, three inches long, is not unheard of for a tarantula hawk wasp. Wow. Yeah. And they have a stinger, which is about a half an inch long. So, you know, it does make an impression on people. But anyway, the tarantula hawk female is a tarantula spider specialist in that she can track down by odor uh, the burrow of a female spider. And the female wasp um, scampers into the burrow where the tarantula is hiding and will flush the tarantula spider out of its hiding place and chase it down and go right up to it and take that very, very long stinger that the tarantula hawk wasp has and insert it into the body, the chest, of the spider, immediately paralyzing it. The tarantula has its own defenses, but they simply don't work against the uh, brave and courageous and strong uh, wasp. And once she's stung the tarantula into submission, she drags it to a burrow, maybe the one that the tarantula was living in originally, hauls it down into the burrow, lays an egg on the spider, and fills in the burrow a bit, and then goes off and tries to do it again. In the meantime, her offspring hatches out of the egg, and the little grub feeds upon the food that its mom so courageously uh, supplied for it. Courageous, man. It's it's mean. I'm going to stay away from them. Although if you look at the the pictures of them, you can go up on Google and you can actually put in the words uh, tarantula hawk. They're really pretty looking insects. They're excellent looking animals. Uh, there's a lot of iridescence on their body and uh, frequently it's, it's black with bluish overtones and they have bright red wings sometimes and they're, they're just uh, elegant animals. I'd also read somewhere in, in some descriptions and stories about you that you had talked about them being very flexible or having flexibility. Well, one of the surprising things about insects is that people do think they're sort of robots and only capable of doing one thing and doing that very, very automatically. But that's not the case at all. There's an awful lot of insects that do things very flexibly. The tarantula hawk wasps do provide an example of that in that the male wasps around here in the Phoenix area, fly up to the tops of the mountains and set up territories on these mountains, defending an entire Palo Verde tree, a little little desert tree, for themselves. And so 
these animals divvy up the, the trees growing along a ridge line. They each have their own territory. And there's some males that don't have territories. And they can recognize that they're not likely to beat the big boys, and so they do something else. They have the flexibility to either hold a territory or to go patrolling along the ridgeline, trying to be flying along just when a female is coming up to one of the big boys' spot. And if they, that's the case, the smaller male, because they are usually smaller, that are prevented from holding a territory, that male may be in a position to grab the female right out of the air and they fall to the ground and mate and prevent that female from mating with one of the territorial ones. So they've, they've got flexibility in their behavior, and this is characteristic of actually almost all insects. With your travels, I mean, in the beginning we talked about you've done research in your backyard. Uh, you spent a lot of time in the Arizona desert and as far away as Australia. You've traveled there at least five times doing research. I bet you have some interesting stories about animal behavior, and I was hoping you could tell maybe one or two stories. Well, I think that the nice thing about being a college professor is this ability to go traveling and go to strange and wonderful places that you wouldn't otherwise go to. And once you're there, there yes, uh, Australia is full of wonderful animals, which have uh, provided me with a lot of entertainment uh, in terms of my research activities. And one of the uh, perhaps most intriguing aspects of my my Australian research has been to study the relationship between, again, a wasp, not a tarantula hawk wasp, but a different uh, group of wasps, and the little terrestrial orchids of Australia. So that there are these species of orchids that rely upon the wasp to get pollinated. And they do so by fooling the wasps. So a male wasp is out flying around and he sniffs through the air with his antennae and smells the odor coming from an orchid. And it, if it is a particular species of orchid that happens to mimic his female smell, he goes rushing towards this orchid and is so keen to meet the orchid, which he thinks is a female, that he'll pounce upon a flower part of the, of the female <laughs> and attempt to mate with that uh, flower part and fly away with it. And in so doing, he uh, gets tumbled into the pollen sacs of the orchid and carries them away with him when he leaves, disappointed that the encounter hasn't worked out quite the way he hoped. <laughs> Very clever. We've talked a little bit in past shows. We have conservation biology and animal behavior, and uh, those terms probably seem familiar to most people. Conservation biologists, uh, as we learned from a previous guest, Andrew Smith, they look at aspects of the ecosystem, including plants and animals, and they want to understand, in many cases, how to protect the environment we all live in. And animal behavior biologists, well, they're interested in animal behavior. However, there is another area, or at least word, that has been introduced more recently by E.O. Wilson. It's called sociobiology. And I say more recently. I'm saying 25 years. And, and to some people, that might not seem like a very long time. But in reality, if you look at the totality of a lot of the research that's gone on, that's pretty recent. Um, you actually are an author of a book on this topic, and so... Could you tell us a little bit about sociobiology and how it fits in with other areas of biology? Yeah, sociobiology is a fairly recent discipline in terms of its name, but it is uh, really just part of animal behavior, and, and that part of animal behavior which involves especially the uh, social behavior of, of animals. So people in the past have studied social behavior, let's say ants and bees and wasps, and they were sociobiologists even though they weren't labeled as such. What Professor Wilson did was to provide a new label for the field of social studies of animals other than humans primarily, 
And uh, that new field has uh, gone on to develop a very active uh, research component over the last uh, 25 years or so. But it was, it was existing even before Wilson came online. And so what are, the, what are the basic principles? The basic principles of sociobiology is that animal social behavior evolves. So the idea is that in the past, uh, individuals that happened to exhibit certain social tendencies left more copies of their genes to the next generation, and that shaped the evolution of the species and provided the uh, descendants of that species with certain behavioral attributes, certain behavioral characteristics that um, make them effective at passing on their genes. So one of the exciting things that sociobiologists study is the issue of sterility in the workers, because the workers don't reproduce. Hmm. And you would think that that would be a very tough thing to pass on to your offspring since they don't have any offspring. And yet uh, sterility is a widespread phenomenon in the advanced social insects like the ants. And the question is, how could it evolve? And the answer has been worked out by sociobiologists. And in a nutshell, it is that the sterile workers in a colony are actually helping their brothers and sisters some of which will go on to reproduce, and in so doing will pass on the genes to the next generation, and those genes can, in the bodies of some individuals, cause them to become workers rather than reproducers. Right, and we talk about the genes and we talk about DNA, and we're talking about the blueprints, we often say. And, and in this case, we have a giant blueprint that isn't just for one type of, of offspring. It could be for several of them. And that, so it's only how those genes are turned on or turned off that we end up building different animals, right? This is absolutely correct. In the case of the honeybee, for example, if the uh, grub uh, that is being fed by the workers in the colony receives an awful lot of food, all those materials activate a set of genes which cause that individual to develop into a future queen, or at least a potential future queen. But if the little grub isn't given that much food, then its body is smaller, and uh, the result is of of its shortage of uh, materials to develop into, it becomes a sterile worker whose ovaries, the egg-producing part of the body, the uh, ovaries simply are not uh, developed adequately to produce um, uh, eggs, and so that individual doesn't reproduce and instead dedicates her life to the care of sisters. Now, do sociobiologists discount, because I'm going to use two words, this nature versus nurture, uh, and so what we were talking about right now is nature and the, uh, the, the, the code, the blueprint, the DNA that's being moved from generation to generation. And then nurturing is more or less the environment that they grow up in. Um, there's always been a bit of that debate no matter where you go as far as how much their influence is one versus the other. Um, does social biology eliminate nurture? No, I think that uh, one of the real advances in the field of sociobiology and animal behavior generally has been a recognition that any behavioral trait, any behavioral characteristic, like the ability to be a sterile worker, uh, depends upon both genes and environment. These things interact, just like the amount of food that the the developing worker bee receives helps it develop into a particular uh, creature with particular abilities. Different amount of food, different amount of nurture, so to speak, and the genes interact with that differently to produce a queen bee. And so nature and nurture uh, work together, interact in different ways, but contribute different things to development, but both are absolutely required for the development of any uh, organism in uh, nature. 
actually the book that you wrote on this topic is the the triumph of social biology and if you would like to uh, read about that you might go to the local library or if you want to buy it go to amazon.com shifting gears it's not uncommon for people to think of science and experiments and think of these fancy labs with all sorts of instruments words that come out are technology and computers and a more a much newer word that's combined where we say biotechnology because these words are emphasized you might think you need a lot of uh, special equipment to do research one of the things that you're able to do is you don't use a lot of equipment and i'd like to hear your view on you know the the wide range of things you can do scientifically without a lot of tools Luckily for me, because I, I'm a little bit computer challenged and so on, but I, I do like to do field work. And field work can be highly technical and highly technological, but it doesn't have to be. For me, the most important pieces of equipment that I have to do the studies which I've done are an insect net and a set of paints of various sorts. So I find it incredibly instructive and revealing to go out to, say, my hilltop in the springtime where the tarantula hawk males are setting up their territories sweep them out of the tree with my insect net, reach in the net and grab the male out because he doesn't have a stinger, I'm safe. And I take a little paint pen and I give him on the back of his thorax, uh, right behind his head, I give him a set of paint-coated colors and then I release him. And so he might be blue-orange or yellow two dots or what have you. And once, once he's marked and released... In most cases, these tarantula hawks are, except this is just a bad day at the office, and immediately return to their work of defending their tree. And so I now know the name, so to speak, of a particular individual wasp. And by returning to the top of the mountain on many, many days over the course of this season, I can see how long he hangs out. And I get some basic information about the natural history of the species that I'm working with by tracking down individuals as individuals. You keep things very simple. I'm assuming you also uh, use some binoculars, maybe? I do. I also carry um, my binoculars with me because it's very helpful not to have to recapture the animal each time. So, yes, that's a bit of high-tech stuff. And I also own one of these small portable scales, and I have been able to use it often very um, usefully because uh, what I can do is I can put uh, my captive animal in a little vial, weigh the vial, let the animal escape, weigh the vial again, and then I've got essentially the weight of the individual involved. And because male body size is so important in the competition amongst the male insects, uh, knowing the weights of individuals can be extremely helpful. And like I say, I do have my little semi-high-tech scale to, to play with. <laughs> well, while we're talking about simple experiments, uh, can you recommend one that someone could do on their own, maybe in their own backyard? Well, uh, if if, uh, the person listening uh, lives in the Phoenix area, one of the insects which is often found in the yards in the late afternoon and early evenings in some numbers is a very small bee. And this bee is um, a species in which the males sleep in clusters on vegetation of various sorts. If you've got a little shrub with little uh, twigs or something sticking out at the top, they will cluster onto the top of of the shrub on these twigs. And once they settle down in the evening and the dusk comes, they become very quiet. You can take a very fine paint brush and some little paints and dot the ones that, are, that uh, you want to follow and get to know them as individuals. Or you can mark a, a, the cluster of males on a particular branch and see if they come back 
to use that same branch, the same individuals the next night, and things like that. Again, marking individuals and getting to know them as individuals can be actually very, um, um, very useful and very um, emotionally satisfying. So they would keep a journal. And, yes. Uh, the other thing, it sounds to me like a, a good family project, and, and quite frankly, I'd send the parents out to do the marking just in case. Uh, that way, uh, if, if you get a bee that hasn't gotten settled down, mom and dad get to get stoned. But really, uh, I assure you that the, the bees that uh, form these clusters, these sleeping clusters, and there are quite a few species that do, but in particular, this is one very abundant uh, bee in this um, part of the world that does that. These are all males, and the males are completely safe to work with. They don't, uh, they don't sting you. And you don't even have to actually handle the animal if you're very cautious and careful with your little paint pen or with a brush with a little dab of paint on it. You mm-hmm. can just mark them right on the spot without ever touching them with your hand. Okay. Many biologists write. Uh, most of them are writing grants, and then they're publishing the research that they've conducted with the funding they got from the grants. Your writing goes well beyond this. You actually have written many books. Uh, some of them I would call popular science textbooks. And, and that just means that they're a little more accessible and a little bit more fun to read, actually, than maybe a, a textbook that you'd read in, in college or in high school. What I'd like to know is what attracts you to writing, and do you prefer one type of writing over another? Well, what attracted me to writing the kind of books which you're talking about was the... I guess first the experience of writing a textbook, which does require that you sort of explain things, at, in my case, at the level of college freshman. And in thinking about how to explain things, uh, you do have to, I think, write in a somewhat accessible manner. And I had an editor at a, a university press. There are universities often have their own publishing units come to me and say that she thought that I should give a try at writing a popular science uh, book for a general audience, and she suggested that I write about the insects and birds and lizards that occurred on uh, this place, Usury Mountain, where I do most of my research. And so I wrote a little book that uh, had a series of chapters, each one dedicated to a particular species, and uh, she thought that I had uh, written something that would be published, so she published it, and I felt good about that. And, and that seems to be what you've done more and more of, is the popular yes. science writing. When did you first know you wanted to be a scientist or biologist? I think that the uh, key event that happened in my life was that uh, way back in the 1940s, my father decided that we would move from a city, Wilmington, Delaware, to the countryside. And so we moved out uh, to really what at the time was quite a remote countryside and lived in a old farmhouse by a dirt road and a pond, uh, an old mill pond that was down on the other side of the road. And my father said also that in addition to making this move, it would be good if we had a family hobby. And that family hobby was bird watching. And I really took to it. I remember the ab- to this day, I was five years old, I remember the absolute thrill of, of going down to the mill pond and seeing a pair of mallard ducks and coming back to my mother and saying, you know, I'd, I'd seen my first bird with my father's binoculars and this was such a thrill to me that I, I kept doing it uh, and still am a bird watcher. And I think right from that, that time, I knew that natural history, the, an interest in um, observing animals in the field uh, was going to be what I would do for the rest of my life. And by George, I was lucky enough to be able to do it. What if I said you couldn't be a biologist anymore? What would you be? 
Uh, I think that uh, my love of being outdoors, and again, my father's influence and my grandfather's, uh, they were both excellent gardeners. I believe that I would opt to become a gardener of some sort, particularly if I could find employment in the field of vegetable gardening, which I prefer to the field of flower gardening. So if, I, if there was an opportunity, and I admit it's a remote op- uh, possibility, to become a vegetable gardener, I, would, I think I would choose that profession. What advice would you have for young scientists? And, and you know, I say young scientists often. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean you're young yourself. It could be you're just new to becoming a scientist. Um, what advice would you have? Well, I, th- I think the key is to have... Um, if you, if you do have an, an, an interest, a passion in some aspect of science, that would seem to be critical to develop. And so I would go with the, with the main interest that, as it has developed. And of course, it may change or mature or what have you as you go along. But I think that you've got to be mildly driven, maybe even a bit odd, but with this real driving interest. And then, then you need a mentor and uh, being able to work with an established scientist, it seems to me, is such a good way to go about uh, learning about a field, learning about what it means to be a scientist and a researcher, and very likely to, if the relationship between you and your mentor is good, which it often is, very likely to be the foundation for um, or springboard into uh, a research career. It's interesting because uh, a lot of those, well, at least the last three questions I ask, every scientist that comes on here. And, and it seems they're fairly similar answers. There's little variations. One of the things that I found most curious is that um, everybody seems to have started out in, in some kind of the field or observing the animals. And one of the things I always like to remind some of the people that maybe in the, in the city, animals are everywhere, you know, even in the city. Uh, they're certainly in the parks and anywhere else. So don't feel like you can't get out and, and observe these animals just because you might be confined by a big metropolis. I think that's really true. And I, I think that uh, the opportunity to, to join with uh, your fellow bird watchers, for example, if that happens to be your, your interest, and it's a great entree into field work, uh, that opportunity exists in most places. There are Audubon groups and so on uh, eager to have uh, new young members. And it's a great way to get to know about a subject, bird watching, and a great way to meet people, and highly recommended. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you, John Alcock. Um, you've been wonderful, and appreciate you visiting with us. Thank you, Dr. Biology. You've been listening to the Ask a Biologist program, and my guest has been Regents Professor John Alcock from the ASU School of Life Sciences. Uh, you can learn more about animal behavior by reading some of his books, The easiest way to find those is to go to Amazon.com and put in the words John Alcock. Now, I will let you know there are a few other authors out there, and there are some people that have the name John Alcock that have been written about. But if you come up with something that deals with animals, I'll guarantee it's going to be the John Alcock. And you might even come across an interesting one called An Enthusiasm for Orchids. It's a little different than the usual book that John has been writing And in case you'd like to listen to some more of the didgeridoo, the song is called Slow Street Mix from the Wanderer album by Christopher of the Wolves, which I love the name because it ties in beautifully with a program on animal behavior. And it's available from magnatune.com. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. Even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.com. 
Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.